Hello, Annie Trenders. Welcome to the Girl Taku, hosted by the ladies of anime trending. If you're looking for a nice tea and deep dive analysis about otaku things, you've come to the right place. We love our conversation and discussion, and we're back with another fun topic on the table. My name is Gracie, and I'm joined by. Hello, I am Isabel, and this is Agnes. So, without further ado, the Girl Taku today will be about anime that have had inspirations or essentially did retellings of classic literature, fairy tales, just classic stories from the olden days. Kind of like Pride and Prejudice, you know, that's a, that's a very classic novel and um, it's been adapted in many ways, whether it's in modern ways, whether it's um, a modern um whether it's influenced or whether it's influenced in a historical thing. Uh, we're looking at these old classic literature, including stuff like fairy tales that might have showed up in anime in particular. And um, and yeah, we want to have a fun time kind of spotlighting them and how we feel about them and what we thought was interesting in the way they interpreted these, uh, these series. Uh, so with that being said, I am starting us off this week and I have... Actually, I have several, um, but I'm gonna go with um, I'm gonna go with the ones that hopefully are a little less known slash talked about, or maybe we don't think as much about them. But I'm pretty sure the other two girls are not gonna talk about this series, uh, which is the Monogatari series, like Bake Monogatari or Monogatari. Um, oh, I'm surprised you picked this series because you don't quite watch them. No, I don't. But I did kind of have a blast with learning about the sort of old stories that were influencing the the every single series. Because there's a lot of series. There's like yeah, yeah, several yeah, yeah, yeah. seasons now. Um, but I think the one that stood out most to me was the interpretation of the monkey's paw. That's actually what caught my attention at first. Uh, the monkey's paw is a very, very old story. It's actually pretty scary. Um, and in fact, I remembered the monkey's paw very well because it traumatized me because <laughs> I'm a scaredy cat when it comes to horror. And um, and the original story of the monkey's paw is it's sort of like a, 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 a tagline of be careful what you wish for. Because these old ladies, they, you know, oh, I'm not these old ladies, this old couple, they found this monkey paw and it was like, it will grant three wishes, um, but be careful what you wish for. And so it was like the first thing they, they grant, they asked the monkey's paw to grant them on is just something they thought was innocuous and that everyone would wish for, which is, um, you know, they wish they had more money and that was it. And so, but the result of it is their son dying because with their son dying, what came out of his insurance and what the company would have to pay for his wrongful death was a lot of money. And so they got what they wanted, but they lost something huge in the process. And so out of grief, the, um, you know, the mother essentially asked the monkey's prod to like, they want their son back. But of course they didn't specify exactly how they want their son back. So they just heard him like at in front of their door with this like clearly crushed voice because I think he was crushed to death and like his fingers, like, uh, you know, scratching at the door, trying to get in and stuff like that. And essentially that terrified the father so much that the father basically wished for the son to be dead again. And, um, and essentially the, you know, it's a really depressing sort of scary ending where, you know, they got quote unquote what they wanted, but not really, they didn't actually get what they wanted. So, um, so the monkey's paw, I remember very clearly because that scared me a lot as a kid and, um, 
and essentially I um and I thought it was really interesting how um they incorporated that into Kanbar Kanbaru. Um, I probably mispronounced like where the emphasis is supposed to be, but um but Kanbaru who um who has essentially a monkey's paw and um and she's able to grant wishes through it and so uh, but just kind of just like the story, things don't go exactly the way you want it to go when you grant wishes through that paw. And so that's just the first example of one. The one I thought that was really interesting was Sin- Sinjoharas. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce the name, Sinjohara. But hers was like this crab. And it's like this crab that was attached to her. And basically it like made her extremely lightheaded and light as a whole. And it was just a very sort of odd thing that I've never heard about really in the first place. And so uh, considering that quite quite literally one of them is about the monkey's paw, I had to just look it up afterwards. And it turns out that there's actually been several myths about crabs stealing the souls of dead soldiers and sailors upon eating their corpses. So with, uh, with Sinjohara like immediately losing her weight and feeling like she's fading, that's really a sort of callback to the myths of believing that crabs can steal souls and, um, and essentially eat their bodies as in eating her weight away. So, uh, so I also thought that that was um, really interesting. But yeah, Monogatari series has a lot of different like combinations of like mythologies and superstitions from all across the world for that matter. Of course, there's the Japanese snake god Orochi that was in there as well. And um, the two cat yokai, Nekomata and Baka uh, Neko, um, that was in Tsubasa's storyline. Um, so it's just like every single one of them, every single series has like a particular, um, a particular element of supernatural that's based on some kind of old mythology or old story. I would say the monkey's paw is probably the most modern one that was present in the Monogatari series. But I thought it was very creative and I just didn't expect that at all in that series. So uh, that is my first pick. And it sounds like you're a little familiar with it, Agnes, from the way you reacted when I said I picked that one. Oh, no, I just knew I was just more surprised because I remember very distinctly that you would never want to touch the Monogatari series. (laughs) (laughs) Because Monogatari was a series that only one person in anime trending really follows, which is Mel. Mel really follows this series, so I did not peg you as the type to actually choose this for today's podcast. It's a little weird, I will admit to that. <laughs> and um, on top of that, it, like, it does throw me off, and I can't... So here's the weird thing. I can't say I like it, so you're not wrong. <laughs> it's, it's not really <laughs> in me to like something like this. But I still can't help but admire objectively what they did. So um, that's like, that's always my tricky thing when I'm watching anime. There's like the side of me that objectively understands it's good and like admire things. And then there's the subjective side, which is like, I'm not vibing with this. And this is very much a case of like, subjectively, I don't vibe with it. But objectively, that's like the implementation mythology and even the monkey's paw I found really impressive. So uh, so yeah, so that's my first pick. And uh, Isabel, I don't know if you, you know, have you seen this one? Or I'm sure you've heard of it because it's a very popular series. So oh, yeah, I definitely heard of it as a long series. So but yeah, I myself have not touched it either. Um, so you bringing this up and then also the monkey's paw itself. I have not heard of that story before. So that's that's very interesting, actually. 
I want to do say though that it's funny that you don't quite like the Bakum the Bakumo the Monogatari series because of what the things do in the anime. There's a lot of very famous like edgy scenes and things like that, and you're not really into it. But because you are very intrigued with how things are pieced together, I would recommend checking out Niso Isin's other works. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um. Because they have written a lot of other really good works, like Katana Gatari, that does have an anime adaptation. And I will say Katana Gatari doesn't have any of, like, that seductive, edgy, like, flirtatious, like, side as much, or, like, fanservice-y side as Monogatari does. But Katana Gatari is very Japanese historical-based focus, which I think you will really like. Okay, perfect, then. Um, and it's funny because the next one I did pick is a historical based one. So, um, so my second one I have is My Happy Marriage. Um, the other two girls already knew I was going to pick that one, but it's the most recent one and it's clearly a Cinderella retelling, but in the context of Taisho Japan era. Um, and I really like what they did with it. So first of all, Cinderella is honestly a very universal fairy tale. I know most people remember it as a Western fairy tale, and it's largely handed to Hans Christian Andersen. Um, that's the one with the pumpkin, the one that ultimately Disney created a movie out of, a very classic movie that has become part of pop culture around the world. Um, but what I will say is Cinderella as a tale it has been present in many countries, just in different shades and different um, different colorations. Like there is a Swedish version of the Cinderella tale. It's a lot darker is what I will add. Um, there's a Swedish version. It's not called Cinderella, but if the bare bones of it with an evil stepmother who remarries into the family and forces the original child out and tries to destroy their life, it's it follows the same beats. And so in eight, um, so growing up, I knew what the Chinese version of Cinderella was. Um, in the Chinese version, it was more about birds than anything else. It's like not so much about the mom, like the birds were the one who gave her her dress and the birds were the ones who helped her out with chores and stuff. So, um, so China also has their own version of Cinderella and she wasn't, she was also not called Cinderella. She was called something else, but the story beats was once again, the same. So that's just one quick to know, like his, like literature history to know, uh, I wanted to add in because a lot, because Cinderella is seen as a Western tale, but in reality, if we try to trace the origins, it's actually quite difficult because many, many, many countries have original Cinderella stories just with a different name, but essentially the same story beats. Uh, But with that being said, My Happy Marriage is without doubt a Taisho era retelling of the Cinderella tale with a bit of supernatural elements inside it. We have an evil stepmother and one evil stepsister, or one evil sister, but in this case, it's a half-sister instead of a stepsister. And the dad is still alive, but the dad is neglectful at best, and so probably emotionally abusive. And um, and they torment her, and they make her do all the chores. They treat her so badly that when she, quote-unquote, meets her prince, um, he's so shocked that her clothes are more worn than a servant's clothes would be because they basically never bought her anything new. And, um, and essentially this, I do think the Cinderella tale is very effective for the Taisho era because, and I think we talked to, you talked about this briefly, Agnes, in our historical, uh, anime episode where we talk about the Japanese history in, in anime is you said the Taisho era is kind of like a return to the more like conservative household, right? With the whole, like, you know, wife who serves the husband and, um, and the husband is like, um, the husband is the bread maker. Is that correct? Or am I? That is correct. Okay. So 
I think the Cinderella tale kind of fits with that because the Cinderella tale is essentially a girl who meets a guy and the guy takes her out of, whisks her out of an extremely abusive situation and she settles into his home and she lives happily ever after. I, I think that bare bones sort of examination of Cinderella fits very well for the Taisho era because of reasons said, you know, said that I just said previously. It's it's kind of perfect for that era. Um and I and I think it also helps with the um with sort of Mio's demure demure personality, like that very polite personality that she has, which was expected of women at that time. Though the Taisho era is kind of interesting because I know at the very end there was a shift in fashion, which is when Western fashion started to get introduced to Japan and specifically um, women who didn't really quite subscribe as much to these sort of societal views or duties. They started wearing Western clothing because they found it to be more freeing. And they actually even integrated that between Mio, who wears, um, you know, traditional Japanese kimonos versus um, her sister-in-law, who divorced a man for that matter who originally married a man because it was expected of her but then divorced him because she wasn't happy and he decided that you know they should separate and she wears western style clothing instead so I really like that sort of element inside it. and I think that um I think that my happy marriage really adapted to the era of that time really well in regards to Cinderella and um, so this is not my observation. Um, I don't want to credit it to myself, but one of the anime news writer reviewer for My Happy Marriage actually made a very good observation that the first half of the series is Cinderella, but the second half of the series is actually Sleeping Beauty. And instead of, you know, Mio being the Sleeping Beauty, it's actually Kudo because Kudo gets put to sleep by this magical curse. And oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> And only <laughs> they Neil, really played into it. Yeah, like only Neil can get him out of it, and she has to go into the curse with him and break it. I thought that was really cool. That completely flew over my head. I was still stuck on the whole Cinderella motif, but uh, once I saw that in the review, I I was like, yeah, I totally see. It. I think that's really cool that they've shifted. That in a way, you can say they shifted fairy tales from Cinderella to Sleeping Beauty. So, uh, so that was another thing I wanted to call out. But uh, with that being said, Agnes Isabel, I, I Isabel, I, I know you've watched My Happy Marriage. Agnes, I don't know if you've ever got to it yet, but you know, even just with your tidbit of like knowledge of the Taisho era in comparison to these fairy tales, you know, uh, do you guys have any thoughts about My Happy Marriage and their usage of these fairy tales? <laughs> I'm kind of interested now because they're because from what I remember in the Taisho era, there was, or from what I remember learning about the Taisho era, was that. It was very much of a conservative push because it was rejecting Westernism almost, mm -hmm. but not quite yet because obviously there was a shift towards Westernism when you were going towards World War II in the Showa era. Um, so I'm a little bit intrigued to see how the show like kind of balances out that era because Taisho era, to my understanding, was very transitional and it wasn't like a mark of a new era per se. Ah, so I really okay. want to see how that's portrayed in uh, My Happy Marriage because both the Meiji and the Showa area eras are big eras. Like they're they're oh, like they very definitive. Ships. Like Meiji yeah. era, <laughs> yeah. There was like there was like a big shift. This is big changes. Everything's happening all at once. Like Meiji era, we all know is like you know Japan decides to break out of isolation, bring in the Westerners, mm -hmm. right? And there's a whole shift of Japan versus Westerners. Like what is going to take over our country? Taisho is very small transitionary because the emperor was very sickly at the time and did not have power. 
So there was a shift in, <gasps> in government and a shift in ideologies. And then finally, the Showa era is where World War II starts. I'm sorry, I gasped because that's actually a plot point. The emperor being ah, sickly. Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So they did actually keep the the original like Taisho like historical motifs instead of just the backdrop. Yeah, but there was an that's, emperor that's a huge in the Taisho era who was very sickly. Plot in the second season, yes. he was sickly and he was losing his supernatural powers. And Kudo, who was very young and developing very strong powers, like it freaked him out because you know how emperors are. They get they get paranoid when they start losing powers like not literal yeah. powers but when they start losing like physical power and you know perhaps there's a young general who's very charismatic with men who loves him like he can totally he's paranoid that he'll get deposed but i that blew my mind because i didn't expect that but yes they had a sickly emperor that was a major part of the story <laughs> yeah oh good so they did include that. i also want to watch my happy marriage because you ranted to me about how horrible that sword fight was with kudo and the one success <laughs> <laughs> yes i really want to watch that just to laugh at how stupid the scene is but eventually i'll get around to it because i know it's been very critically acclaimed by lots of people in the anime community and also um uh people who aren't as involved in the anime community as well yeah so. Um, yeah, okay, well, thank you for that tidbit, though, Agnes, that, that was really exciting. You're welcome. <laughs> I am glad to be as of service. <laughs> uh, what about you, Isabel? <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely, Agnes, that was, like, perfect, because I also was, like, Gracie, like, oh, yeah, the Empress actually liked that, so. But yeah, for me, I, the, at least the fairy tale portion, kind of like Cinderella, I, you know, I like watching Happy Marriage, but I couldn't quite put my finger on exactly, you know, why I liked it, or, you know, to me, especially when, you know, you said that it's a Cinderella tale, I just wanted a face palm, like, oh, duh, you know, evil <laughs> stepsister type thing. Like, why didn't I figure this out sooner? You know, Mio gets saved by Kudo and things like that. Um, but yeah, that just, I just, I guess also shows how like perfectly they adapted it kind of to the time. And so, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what happens because they're, they're tying a lot of things together, right? Fairy tale, And then also there's like the magic portion as well. And then kind of, you know, the belief in spirits and things like that and how they handle that. So yeah, I don't know what to expect in the second season, but if, yeah, if it really is Kudo taking the part of a Sleeping Beauty, that'll be interesting to see as well. For sure. Um, alrighty then. So those are the two I picked and I'm curious to hear what the others have picked for this particular theme today. So Isabel, you are up next. So what are some, you know, anime you've seen that's been inspired by classic stories from the olden days or fairy tales, you know, stuff that has become very much part of literature history that everyone knows about. <laughs> Yeah, the first one I picked, kind of going along the fairy tale Cinderella, um, is Snow White with the red hair. Ah, okay. There you go. Mm -hmm. I wanted someone to talk about it. Good, good, good. Oh, really? Okay. okay. Yeah. Maybe you can I say was gonna, I was going to talk about it in case somebody didn't uh -huh. bring it up, um, but I'm glad you took it. Go ahead. Mm. Take it away. But yeah, I feel like my observations of Snow White with the red hair are very basic. Like, I feel like there's more ties to Snow White, but I don't see them because... Because just starting off with the title, I think that's what's interesting to me. The fact that it literally says Snow White, but then with the red hair. So like without even knowing what the show is about, you kind of already have a, kind of like a context. Like if you have watched Snow White or even know about, uh, you know, the tale, you're just wondering, oh, how is this different or how is this the same? Right. 
And so that's how I watched Snow White with the red hair as well. I was like looking for everything that I knew about Snow White. I was looking for the doors. I was looking for like the mirror and things like that. Um, but I almost didn't find almost like not that many things. I mean, Chiraiki uh, is so different from Snow White because Snow White is more, I would say, kind of more submissive. And, you know, she's like a class classic type of princess gets saved by the prince and things like that. And, you know, Chiraiki does get saved by Zen in the series as well and there's this like royalty and fairy tale like setting um that makes it very beautiful to watch but yeah so like but then shiraiki is also like as you can tell very like forward like she's an herbalist and things like that she does her own things her own way and there's only little instances of like the poison apple um which you see in both tales and then maybe some of the characters that are around her that kind of help her out Obviously, they're not dwarves, but then they're kind of people who like influence her decisions and then also kind of influence, you know, Zen's decisions as well for them to, you know, be together. And then also they have their own relationships and things like that. Um, but those are like the only observations that I could pull from it. But I kept watching it because I wanted to know more, like I wanted to make more associations with the show itself and then with Snow White from what I remember it as well. And but yeah, sometimes I never get that. And Maybe maybe there are ties with Zen, though. I don't know if you've seen that, Agnes, or mm. what observations you had between the two. So it's really hard to talk about uh, Shiraiki and the Snow White, because mm -hmm. like you said, there's not a lot of parallels to the original Snow White by Disney, or even the original Snow White from fairy tales, right? Um, first of all, their physical differences are very, very different, right? Shiraiki has red hair. And Snow White has black hair, red lips, well, fair white skin. However, I would like to make a counter-argument where I think the reason why Shirayuki is inspired off of Snow White and the reason why she has red hair is because red hair is uncommon. It is a thing of it is a thing of beauty, but it's also a thing of an intrigue. Snow White technically fulfills that role in the original German tales and also in the Disney tale. However, in in the backdrop of a fantasy setting, it doesn't really stand out. Lots of other characters in Shirayuki Hime also have black hair. So like you, Obi have black hair. And if she had like blonde, pale hair like other people, then she would look exactly like Zen, Miki, or Mitsuhide. So having her with red hair makes her stand out as the protagonist and be the Snow White of the series. Although Shirayuki Hime is more of a subversion of the tale because of the fact that she can also save herself and she is very self-sufficient as compared to Snow White who gets saved multiple, multiple times. So I think in a way Shirayuki Hime is kind of a, an interesting take on Snow White because it's a what if Snow White wasn't as helpless as she really was. Um, there was a really interesting article that I did read about Shirayuki Hime where they said there's also not a lot of other things to point out. But one thing to do point out is the first seven characters that are mentioned aside from Shirayuki match up in terms of demeanor with the seven dwarves. Oh, really? Okay. So based on this article that I read, it goes like this. Chief Gazalt, who's the head medicine of the castle, is supposed to be related Doctor. to... Doc, ah, okay. <laughs> good, good. Okay, you're catching on. Okay, so we're playing the game now. Prince Izana is the stern older brother of Zen, who is grumpy. Yes. Yay! Okay. <laughs> okay. I hope you're not reading the same article I'm reading no, from. Okay, no, Gracie. So no guessing. cheating. Yeah. Okay. Mitsuhide is the smiling guard. Happy. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> uh, Ryu is the reserved young boy. 
bashful? Yes, okay. good. <laughs> Kiki is the mellow guard. Mellow. Sleepy? Good, good, okay. good. <laughs> Raj is the sickly prince. Oh, sneezy. Good, and who's the remaining one? I don't remember who the remaining character is, but it only Dopey. has Dopey left. <laughs> yeah, Dopey. And who's he associated with? I don't know. That's the a care who is a carefree servant in the series, who does as he pleases. Is it Obi? It's Obi. <gasps> it is Obi. Wow. It is Obi. So seven of the other prominent <laughs> cast members have personality types that are very much like the seven dwarves, uh, which I thought was very interesting to spotlight for this series. And this actually persists for both seasons too. In both seasons of Shiraiki, there's no new characters that are introduced it is solely those seven and even into the manga later on it is mostly these seven that have very recurring themes and their own storylines so in a way it is a reinterpretation of snow white and an expansion on snow white uh, <laughs> 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 just want a dopey character for yourself that's it that's all you have to say i just had fun playing the guessing game <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I had a feeling you had fun playing the guessing uh, no, game. No, <laughs> actually, one of my thoughts is, I'm tr I, I don't know if either of you two remember, but unfortunately, I don't remember which of you two said it. One of you two in a previous episode pointed out that Zen took the role of Snow White because he was the one who bit the apple and poisoned himself. And funnily, it oh, yeah, that's right, huh? I think it might have been. It is definitely not. Then me, it has to be Isabel because I. To me. I was just like, I, could, uh, I don't it like has Zen. To be Isabel because I. I remember my mind being being blown. Yes. so it couldn't have been me. But it's like then Isabel, you were the one who pointed out that there was like a funny role reversal where Zen is the one who bit the apple and he was Snow White and it kind of fits with his hair coat, like with his coloration, like he kind of fits the the typical Snow White description. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I think that's what I wanted to say earlier, but I forgot completely, <laughs> so I didn't mention it. Well, there you go. This is where all our brain cells come together after yes. how many years uh, of recording two, now? Three, so. question mark? About two years of recording now. Hey, yeah, I, I, this I is can where check, it all comes together. Quickly. Um, oh, oh yeah, three. Yeah, yeah. We are three years old, guys. <laughs> wow. Yeah, um, but yeah, definitely didn't see the whole Seven Dwarves thing. Did you see that, Isabel? No, I didn't. I thought there might be. That I'm like, because the dwarves are so important in the series, right? So mm -hmm. I thought there might be, or I thought, you know, maybe they appear later on. But now I can kind of see it with the characters. So if, especially mm -hmm. if you make that comparison, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'll post the link to the article um, in the in our group chat and if you want you can put yeah, it in the yeah. tweet as well because I think it's a very it's a very important article for context because otherwise like when you're watching Shiraiki Hime you're kind of like you don't see it you have to really mm -hmm. squint and turn your head to the mm -hmm. side to actually see it right because everything changed so much in Shiraiki that almost nothing resembles the original uh, but that's fine I feel like I mean I'm a huge fan of retellings and retellings and twists obviously I wrote my own as you guys know so um so it's like right. I always think it's fun to see what they can do and it, and it really just shows off the um I think it really just shows off how uh, something could be so similar and yet so different at the same time. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, alrighty, so that is your first pick, Isabel. So what is your second pick, then? Yeah, my second pick uh, is Zetsuin no Tempest or Blast of Tempest. Oh! oh 
very good, very good pick. Okay, yeah. I know why. Okay, <laughs> it's the one with the Shakespeare references. Yes, I assume both of you have seen this one. I have seen parts of it, so I know a, a fairly good deal about what happens in the show. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yes, I chose that one just because I, I don't think it was like a you know great, like spectacular type of show, but I thought it was very it was very different. And it was very intriguing in that the show actually combines two of Shakespeare's, I would say maybe like most famous works, which are The Tempest and Hamlet. Although you yes. wouldn't get Hamlet from the, the title itself, Blast. No. <laughs> Tempest. And I think the reasoning for that is because Blast of Hamlet doesn't really sound cool. Probably so I guess Blast not, of- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is a shonen title, so you gotta you gotta give it more gusto, right? You can't just call it the 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 the, the blast of Hamlet. <laughs> That's pretty bad. That would be really pretty funny, actually, if it was named that. I think at some because we've so we're so accustomed to anime names, though, we might just accept it too. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the basic plot line is that we have like two guys, uh, Mahiro, who's kind of like the main character in our series, and his uh, childhood friend Yoshino, and they're like two friends who are drawn into like this conflict i guess they're two normal guys but then they realize there's like the supernatural around them and the main thing is that my hero kind of wants revenge um over the person that killed his younger stepsister aika mm-hmm. and uh, so that that story is kind of his story is uh basically hamlet um where hamlet go- goes home to find his the king or his father murdered by his uncle and then his uncle marries his uh his mother and so hamlet's not very happy with that so it draws upon that type of story of like betrayal and obviously um revenge on who killed their family member and and as for the tempest i personally haven't read the tempest but apparently it's about a mage and so the mage um in blast of tempest is hakaze yeah. yeah and she's the one who's like on an island and she is isolated from everywhere else everyone else Mm -hmm. and but then she she's kind of like the mage that has a really has uh, power especially from her clan i think they're they're part of clan that has been you know protecting or at least practicing uh magic and um so she's isolated on an island um and then they say that aika's death is related to this um link called the tree of genesis and so that's kind of like the magic that actually is threatening the world. So, so Hakaze is kind of like the the mage that's also um, in the tempest, and and is also isolated on an island as well. And so you know they ma- manipulate their powers um, and things like that. And it's interesting how all these characters kind of kind of come together, especially Mahiro Yoshino and then uh, the mage Hakaze all together, and you know they you know um you know they form relationships uh, but then they also kind of go over this betrayal between each other i think it's also a secret that mahiro's younger sister aika actually had a relationship with his um with his friend yep yoshino which i yep. thought that was like a really <laughs> interesting thing that i didn't i didn't really see coming but when it was revealed or at least uh, that came up i was like oh this is this is pretty messy <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a very messy series, yeah. 
yeah i don't think it was enough i feel like and then they also pull in like shakespearean quote like directly like they actually directly quote things from shakespeare itself from these two works and honestly a lot of it just blew over my head um but i found it interesting that they were able to incorporate that in the series and kind of just straight out just start quoting shakespeare kind of in the middle of, of an episode or something uh so i thought that was pretty funny agnes what did you think about that or like did you see all the references and have you read Hamlet or The Tempest as well? I've read The Hamlet when I was in high school and I read The Tempest when I was in college. Um, I thought Blast of the Tempest has a very creative way of introducing the two Hamlet series. My favorite one is obviously The Tempest, which is based after because Hakaze essentially takes up the role of Prospero, who is the, the magic user. She is the <laughs> most powerful magic user and Prospero in The Tempest is also the most powerful magic user, and they're both chased out by their respective clans, uh, with Prospero uh, escaping onto an island where he's by himself. Uh, technically, Prospero has his daughter with him, but in The Blast of the Tempest, Hakaze is by herself, and the only way that she could contact the outside world was literally to use uh, an, a magic item that floated back to Japan. Um, and that was her way of kind of like getting in touch with the world, and that was kind of what the Tempest was going to for as well was that there are certain fortuitous moments that led characters to the island um, to meet Prospero and to meet the Denzians on the island. Um, and I remember the Tempest more clearly because I had read it when I was in college. So that was obviously not too long ago. Hamlet was a little bit earlier than that. So I was a little bit confused on why Hamlet was involved in it. But after realizing that the Blast of the Tempest is just one big political drama and one particular magical family, I'm like, okay, yeah, I can see the Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> but I do agree that Zetsuzid no Tempest or Blast of the Tempest is a very messily executed plot. So it's not the best anime to watch for these references, but it, it's a good nod to show that there that these types of works are incorporated into um into like anime and manga. I thought it was um I thought it was pretty fun. I think it helps because Hamlet and The Tempest are like some of my favorite Shakespeare uh plays. There you go. Here we have the expert yeah, here. Yeah, I go. <laughs> so I had to read a lot of Shakespeare. Like I don't know, the South really loves their Shakespeare. <laughs> I guess that's what I'll say, but. I Well, there's a reason behind that, but I won't say it for the sake of this podcast. <laughs> well, now I want to know. <laughs> well, we can talk about that after you finish okay. your spiel. Um, I never reveal well, why. Well, uh, okay, so basically, I had to read a lot of Shakespeare, and essentially, I could squarely choose which ones I like and which ones I don't like. Um, I don't like a lot of his tragedies. I think they're dumb. <laughs> I, I don't like a lot of his romances. I think they're dumb. <laughs> so, But I did like the ones that had, like, a bit of supernatural element, which is Hamlet. Hamlet. I guess Hamlet is a tragedy, but it feels more just dark and angsty than tragedy to me. So I didn't count it as one. And then The Tempest actually has a happy ending. So uh, so I like that one. And though my favorite one is Merchant of Venice. That was actually my favorite. I ignoring the problematic racist, you know, things in there. Like, you know, brushing that aside. Because, of course, there is from that time period. Um, if, if, we, if we cut that part out, then Merchant of Venice is probably my favorite. But... Uh, Blast of Blast of Tempest was really interesting to me because Hamlet and The Tempest were two of my favorite Shakespeare plays. So, to I can't I couldn't really imagine the two of them merging together was the thing. 
So the fact that I saw an attempt to make it merge, I was like, oh, this is interesting. Definitely not what I would have thought of in regards to two stories, Shakespearean plays merging, but it's very um, fascinating in that regard. I also like this choice because I think, um, I don't know, like, uh, it might just be a me thing. Like, I would, I definitely, I guess we're used to seeing Romeo and Juliet, which is the star-crossed lovers, but I feel like anything else outside of Romeo and Juliet, I feel like is not something you think is very international, and then this comes in, and it reminds you, actually, no, a lot of Shakespearean plays are international. It's not just Romeo and Juliet, for mm-hmm. that matter. So that's the other thought I had when I was watching it. In regards to my memories of whether I liked it or not, it's a little hard to remember because this was back in 2013. So um, so it's like a, a very long time ago at this point. And then, um, and then on top of that, high school was just extraordinarily um, difficult and like having to transition because it ran from 2009 to 2013, which is literally right during my high school years. So I don't remember much of it because I was much more absorbed in regards to like doing homework and studying for exams. But it matched up very well with a lot of the Shakespearean stuff that I was learning at that time in my school curriculum. And it and it worked out that they were like two of my favorite plays. So I remember thinking it was interesting that they tried to combine it. And I definitely enjoyed it. It like I wouldn't say I loved it. It, obviously because I'd remember it better if I loved it but um but I did enjoy the fact that they used that so uh so yeah Agnes why why does the South learn Shakespeare <laughs> well a part of it is well Shakespeare definitely existed during the time of the American Revolution and so there's a lot of not the, sorry not the American Revolution I'm, I'm, yes no the American Revolution so there's a lot of you know sheltering of uh shuffling of information back and forth between Europe and America, but if you notice the difference between the northern part of the U.S. and the southern part of the U.S., mainly northeastern, not so much northwest of the U.S., the northeastern part of the U.S. is very heavily focused on secularism, but it's very like Greco-Roman type of learning. So a lot of uh, school institutions in the northeast focuses a lot on what Latin, Latin and Greek. Oh. Um, but in, in comparison, the South during the time of the American the American Revolution and then the civil the Civil War, a lot of the South were uh, were nobility. They were people who were also part who had ties back to Europe. They had very they were very noble in a sense. They were America's nobles. And as a result, a lot of this like Shakespearean knowledge and all of this information would be retained in these families, as opposed to the North, where it was more Greco Roman Latin. Ah, uh, okay, that's interesting. Definitely didn't know that. Yeah. Although there, you can't say like, oh, like Shakespearean did not exist in the Northeast. It definitely did, but there is a a much larger focus in the more rational when you think about in the Northeast, as opposed to the South, where there was more freedom in the not in the expression, but in like the festivities and the indulgences. I would say I had a feeling that it had something to do with the whole, uh, you know, southern, you know, the southern ball, you know, that sort of thing. Yes. I had yes. a feeling you had something to the do southerners, with that. The southerners viewed themselves as the elite of America 
as much as they viewed themselves as almost like kind of like how the nobil- the nobility in Europe were the elites of Europe, right. right? The South viewed themselves very much as that. The Northeasterns definitely tried to view themselves as new upstart nobility, but unfortunately, a lot of the Northeasterns were more coming from merchant-styled families. So a lot of them were upstarts from like factories. So you have a lot of like women who debut themselves for the first time, but they're like daughters of um, fathers who own like soap factories and things like that. And they weren't really well regarded in European society, but Southern society was very much like European society. So they got along fairly well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, Alrighty, so that is uh, the ones that uh, Isabel picked, which is, you know, very fun. And I, I, I like that we strayed away from... Uh, we strayed away from fairy tales in this one. So I'm really curious to hear, especially as the person who originated this topic, I'm really curious to hear who you picked uh, or which anime you picked, Agnes, for this. So I have three animes, two of them that I'm going to go more in depth and one of them I'm going to spotlight. But I'm going to go with the spotlight one first because we're talking about fairy tales. And to be honest, you guys did really well in your homework assignment. <laughs> I wasn't expecting <laughs> I wasn't expecting you guys to go so in-depth. So when you hear my picks, you're just like, oh, of course you would pick this one. It's very surface level. Okay, I did not go very deep in the scenes <laughs> of this. Um, so that was my mistake for so long for this. But I'm very impressed and I'm very I'm very glad that you guys picked all these very interesting topics to talk about. Um, so my first pick to Spotlight would be from the animated series that was actually adapted by Shaft because it was originally an anime an, an American animated series, and that is RWBY Ice Queendom. Oh! From the original RW uh, anime that was aired in the West. Okay, I'm very and, curious, actually. Ruby. And the reason why is that when Monty Ohm created the series of RWY at Rooster Teeth in Texas, by the way, <laughs> Ruby was conceptualized as every single character in the series is inspired off of a fairy tale. The idea of Ruby is that in this fairy tale world of Remnant lies a great threat known as Grimm, very much similar to the Grimm brothers. The Grimm are monsters that are born from tales that have tusks, they have teeth, they're big, they're wolves, they're bears, they're dragons that threaten to ravage the earth. And the only way to kill the beasts of Remnant, the Grimm of Remnant, is to have hunters and huntresses which are very much similar to the hunters that you see in fairy tales, like uh, Goldilocks, for example. Goldilocks has a hunter. Um, And also Red Riding Hood also has a hunter. Surprisingly enough, many of the huntress and huntresses as characters within RWBY are inspired from various uh, mythologies and fairy tales. The main core of RWBY, or Ruby as the team is called, is comprised of Ruby Rose, who is inspired off of Red Riding Hood oh, with her course, signature red cape and scythe. <laughs> Weiss Schnee, who is dressed in white and acts very princessy, is inspired from Snow White. Blake, who's inspired from the tales of Beauty and the Beast after she flees from her dictatorship-like leader. And Yang Xiaolong, which is the funniest one because she does not have a very white name, but she's, she has a very Chinese-esque name. She's actually inspired from Goldilocks with her rage and her golden hair. And the remaining cast members in Ruby that exist throughout the series, not just only in Ice Queendom, but also in the original American series, include the team of Juniper, which has Jean, Jean being inspired from Jean d'Arc, um, Pira, who's inspired by, um, I believe it's Achilles, 
Um, you have Nora, who's inspired by the god of Thor, of thunder. And then you have, um, uh, what's his name? It's, give me a second. I, I was going guy. off of this and then I completely forgot. <laughs> this is how long that I've not been um, into Ruby as a whole. Um, his name is Sun. No, well, there is a character named Sun, oh. and he's inspired by Sun Wukong, by the way. Just kidding, wrong person. <laughs> there, he's very, he's very important, but he belongs to a different team. Um, there's a character, uh, Nora, and is it the Asian? Oh, Ren. Guy? It's yeah, it's the Asian guy, Ren, who's inspired from Mulan. Oh. So Ruby's team is inspired by typical princess-inspired um, fairy tales. The Juniper team is inspired by heroes. <laughs> So each one of these teams have their own color scheme, their own like mythological interpretation and their own theme that goes along with it. And that's why Ruby was very popular for a very long time because people were very excited to see their character designs. People were really excited to see their powers and people were just really excited to see how creative the teams were construed out of. Gracie, um, there is a character in the series. His name is Crow, but he's technically more like a raven and his thing his like special power is that he has bad luck, <laughs> but it but it always but he has a very tragic, sad backstory. So Aww. I think that's the only reason why you'd like him. <laughs> I feel for him. He almost gets together with a gay guy, but then he, that gay guy of dies. Course. By the way, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, but that is the that's the main story of Ruby from the original uh, anime series of the original American series which the Japanese series for Ice Queendom technically mimics the first half of the series before it takes a really weird turn in which Weiss from the Team Ruby decides to become very dictatorship. Um, that part I didn't really watch because I knew it was just really bad execution overall, but I wanted to spotlight Ruby because of all of its like themes and its, like, um, its characterization, its colorization. And I think it's like one of the biggest uh, things known to media about like, what is in a mythology? What is it a fairy tale? How do we reinterpret it? I was gonna say, um, you know, there the the white one that you said was Snow White. I was gonna guess the Snow yeah. Queen because of the way she looks. Oh yeah, so it's it's very easy to get uh, guess her as the Snow Queen, but there's actually a lot of other references from Weiss that is actually very Snow White. Um, each of the characters also have their own theme song, by the way. Her theme song is very Snow ah. White esque because um, she's like a bird trapped in a cage. Weiss wants to be free. She doesn't want... She wants to be recognized as a huntress, but she doesn't want to be recognized as the heir to a company, an heir to a throne type of thing. Okay. Um, well, I never really watched uh, Ruby Kingdom. Uh, the only thing I remember is the very first video with Ruby and that scythe. And you know me, I love scythes. <laughs> so... <laughs> and I like red motifs. So I was really enraptured by that. But I think I just never really got into it like everyone else did. Don't get into it. The Jack and I can talk about it for an eternity. It is a show after after monty unfortunately passed away yeah. so not worth picking up but i think like reading the wikipedia or just like reading each of the characters like characterization is really and cool. did you like it the way that they use this and like with the heroes from legends and like fairy tales oh yeah i i was really into it because like the thing is like when you're watching the series they don't tell you it outright you kind of have to guess yeah. So, like, with Ruby Rose, like, you can obviously see that she's inspired from, like, Red Riding Hood. She's wearing a red cape, and in that first trailer of her, she's slaying beasts, right, with that red scythe of hers. Um, and you can tell, like, Snow White is Weiss, because Weiss is the only one that is completely decked in white, right? 
Um, so there's a lot of these like motifs, but some of the other ones aren't very apparent from the very beginning. Um, and you kind of had to watch the series to anticipate where they go because each of these characters also have like special powers that come with it too. So you can kind of use their special powers to kind of extrapolate what hero or what mythology they came from. Got it. And what about you, uh, Isabel? Have you did you ever watch Ruby? Were you ever into it slightly, even? <laughs> Yeah, I was actually. So I did watch like a couple seasons of the Mary. Oh no! Yeah, oh no! American version of Ruby before it started falling off um, a little bit, but I, I enjoyed it. I think like Yay! the concept yeah. was very good. I think like yeah, don't watch anything past season three. You're yeah. good where you stopped. Yeah, so I was hoping. Yeah, I know. Like, there's a lot more. Like, the, it We're just has so much nine, potential. Gracie, can you believe it? It's yeah. horrible. That does sound like torture. yeah. It's like supernatural where it's like everything went to. Oh, I've heard horror stories about that one, too. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. So that is one of the ones you picked. What's the second one you picked in your your own topic? So the second one I want to pick is probably something that's very obvious. I've talked about it in the show before. And this podcast before. And that's Ancient Magus Bride. I I did think about that one. Yep. Yeah, and the reason why I want to talk about Ancient Magus Bride is that Ancient Magus Bride focuses on a very particular type of mythos that isn't quite explored by Japanese culture, anime, or manga, but rather a lot of anime and manga tend to kind of dumb down Celtic and Great Britain folklore that you basically know only a few handful of things like the spirits and stuff like that. But Ancient Magus Bride really dives deep into kind of the mythology of the of the other side as compared to the real world where Chise and Elias live in. And then also kind of throw in their own mix of like very eclectic mages and witches and wizards, or rather they're called sorcerers, I guess, um, that live in this era too. So that's why I really like Ancient Magus Bride. It's like this blend of like true um, Celtic and Great British folklore with uh, a more modern day setting that we would typically see like in Japan or like in uh, Great Britain, Europe. I um and I will say I actually think it's probably good to have a little bit of understanding of the mythology before going into Ancient Magus Bride because yes. I got that yes. from watching Earl and Fairy, funnily enough. Yes, so yes i got a bit of an understanding before with earl and fairy a long time ago so when i went in because they don't really explain a lot of the things yeah they, they just don't. kind of throw you into yeah. it so um so i think having a bit of underlying understanding will be good my favorite is not to agnes's surprise the willow wisp <laughs> i think they did a very you love the willow wisp i just love him he's so cute he's did you see the will-o'-wisp pop up again these past couple episodes when whenever uh whenever she comes on screen um has she showed up i haven't seen her not not in the not in like the past couple weeks but a little bit before that when the second course started for season i two. must have missed it i did not see it <laughs> oh damn yeah you missed out it was the halloween one where like she she takes up like the oh uh, the, oh, the ghost sheet yes, and she goes I and to confront rainford yeah, 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 yeah the will-o'-wisp shows up in that when i was watching that i was like oh gracie's gonna love this yes no i i love the will he's so cute and blobby <laughs> so mm-hmm. and just squishable and he's so mean but in, like in a cutesy way so <laughs> <laughs> of course he has to be mean for gracie to like uh, also he perches on her head like what more do you want you <laughs> Oh my gosh, he's 
Isabel, do you happen to know what we're talking about? This willow wisp. I do. Isn't he like a like a fairy or something? Yes. Yes. Yeah. The willow wisp are fairies of the dead. I kind of forget um, about him. But I think now that in you mentioned, yeah. actual mythology, they're just like literal wisps, like wisps of light. Yeah. Yes, they are. And mm-hmm. here, they are. very wispy. He's like. adorable. <laughs> so. <laughs> So you do like this interpretation from Kore then? Yes, I do. Uh, I guess what was your your favorite interpretation of like the fairies? My favorite interpretation is Titania and Oberon. Oh, okay. From season Again. one. Because um, Titania and Oberon are very, very important to um, Great British uh, folklore and tales. Because Tyrannog is the old name of Great Britain. It is referenced as the land of fairies, but it's also referenced to basically the other side. And to have Titania and Oberon kind of become friends with Jisei, I think is very important because they've basically shown that they're willing to accept her as one of theirs as well, um, which is very rare in Celtic mythology in general. And if I remember correctly, Oberon himself used to be human too. Yes. Before he crossed to the other side. So that's what I thought was really interesting. And I really like that added tidbit. There's a lot of other mythology that's kind of thrown around. Like, for example... Um, the pregnant spirit during Yuletide is one of them. Um, you also have one of the classmates of Chise at the college right now. He's actually half Gorgon and right, half human, right, yeah. um, which was super interesting to see. And yeah, uh, overall, I just kind of like these little references thrown in here and there, and then just their uh, reinterpretation of it as a whole. Well, what about you, uh, Isabel? Is, do you have a favorite sort of reinterpretation of these uh, mythology Celtic ones specifically? <laughs> yeah, you know, so I'm not familiar with them. So I'm ah. like that type of, I guess, watcher who really gets like, I really don't understand <laughs> what's going on or what the reference is. Mm-hmm. So like, there's a lot, there's a lot that when I watch Ancient Magnus Bride, I just kind of have to accept like this is part of the world that I have no background on uh and for some reason because I didn't know this I just think that it's made up or the author made this all up but oh it was so gosh. hard for me to grasp <laughs> yeah so like now that you're explaining I'm like oh now I kind of because I kind of get the idea like basic ideas kind of like Ruth who is kind of like who's you know Chisei who's handing things around Chisei and you know he's a dog but it's kind of like a, they term it as like a familiar and so I kind of know that, but I don't know from where, but basic terms like that's okay. But when it like goes into like the dragons or things and other names or even the names of the episodes, I'm just like, okay, that that's ancient Magnus Pride. All right. I don't know what to expect, but here we are, right? Uh, so yeah, I can only get, yeah, the easier references, uh, like you said, the classmate with the Gorgon and things like that. But then the, the other ones and the fairies and things, those are a little bit harder for me to grasp. Got it. No, I understand. Yeah, that makes sense. Because like you said, um, like Gracie said, you do need a little bit of knowledge mm-hmm. when you come into the series instead of not when you come into the series. I kind of like had some knowledge and kind of didn't have some knowledge. So I kind of had some fun kind of perusing through Wikipedia after I finished some mm-hmm. parts of the series. So that was that was my little treat right there instead of just waiting to watch everything I want to go being like, why, why do I not understand this? So yeah, that kind of makes me feel better. <laughs> Yeah, it's okay. It's it's okay to look up these references in the middle of the series. They they're not expecting you to know everything like front and back of all of these tales, but just the little tidbits I think helps for sure. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, I think both of us in this case, Agnes and I, both of us got lucky because we had happened to watch Earl and Fairy before, so we we accidentally mm-hmm. got that sort of introduction to it already. <laughs> 
the last one I think should come to nobody's surprise. Um, because, and I think this was the main inspiration why I came up with this topic title of name anime that you know from mythology, fairy tale, folklore type of thing. And I, I have to say it because I played this game for way too long now, and I, I would be, I would do a disservice to the community if I don't mention it, but it would be, uh, the Fate series in general. Oh, um, but the one that I'm going to target today is going to be Fate Apocrypha. Because it features 14 servants instead of 7. And all 14 of these servants have very compelling mythologies and themes that are portrayed in this series as a whole. Um, out of the 14 servants, I'm going to list them as they follow. Um, we all know the basic premise of fate, right? I don't really have to go over it so much <laughs> with every iteration and of this the, uh, podcast. the rest of the story was as easy to follow as the premise, but yes. <laughs> okay. Cool. Okay, so the premise, we all know. We just need to know that for the basic premise. I'm not going to go so much in the details about what actually happens in Fate Apocrypha because it's basically a lot of spoilers, I guess. And there's a lot to digest in Fate Apocrypha. Um, but to name the characters from the Black Faction and the Red Faction, seven from each, all with different identities. For the Black Faction, we have Siegfried from the original um, Nibelugden, the Song of Nibelugs, from uh, Siegfried to slay the, um, the dragon. Um, we have Chiron from, is it Chiron or Chiron? The one that trains um, uh, Hercules. Mm. <laughs> uh, we have Vlad the Third, who is Vlad Dracula. Of course. <laughs> uh, we, have Frank, we have Frankenstein's monster, um, who she is the, like the reincarnation of the actual monster in of itself and utilizes lightning. We have uh, Avis Braun. Who who was um who was a very famous Arabic um scholar, but also in this interpretation he's a very famous Arabic like um mage or like sorcerer wizard type of thing. We have Jack the Ripper, um, who is uh, signified as the lolly as a lolly, but technically it's because the Jack the Ripper in Fate Apocrypha is an amalgamation of. The babies that were aborted out of prostitutes during the Jack the Ripper era. So then that culminates into the identity of Jack the Ripper. So that's interesting. Um, I don't know if you caught that. <laughs> but moving on, for the Red Faction, we have Atalanta. Atalanta was one of the people who um, who rode the seas with, um, with what's his face? Um, the the guy who went into the, um, the, the labyrinth. Oh! The Minotaur labyrinth. Yeah. Yes. Oh no! Sorry, Atalanta's involved in the the Golden Fleece. Jason and the Golden Fleece. She's involved in the expedition in the Golden Fleece. Uh, you have Karna from Indian Hindu mythology. You have Achilles on the opposite team. You have William Shakespeare. You have Ceramus, and then you have Spartacus. So all of these characters, all of these very famous mythologies and names that you may have may not recognize. And they all have their independent stories within Fate Apocrypha, despite how incredibly messy. And kind of fucked up this story really is. So I needed to spotlight that because it features the most number of characters within a particular series that is not from Fate Grand Order. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Um, yeah, no, Fate series has a lot. It's, it's a mishmash of all of them. I mean, just knowing King it's Arthur a, is in there, you know, like it's a mishmash of everything. Yes, King Arthur is very important, yeah. to say the least. <laughs> 
Uh, alrighty. Well, now, um, so thank you everyone for listening. I think this wraps up our episode in regards to an anime that has, you know, retellings, reinterpretations of classic stories or fairy tale. And, you know, let us know if there are any that comes to your mind in regards to ones you've seen that's just stood out to you that you enjoyed or thought it was interesting. And, um, and I hope you'll be back here next week when we are back with another fun topic. So bye everyone. Bye-bye.